Galatians chapter 5, verse uh, 13, Paul writes these words, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for sin, but through love serve one another. Uh, whether it's freedom in the Christian faith, that uh, freedom that we have from the dominion and the power of sin, or uh, it is the various freedoms and liberties that we might enjoy in a society, that notion of freedom and liberty is a very, very powerful one. It's deeply embedded, I think you would agree, in our uh, cultural psyche. Uh, it's in the Declaration of Independence. It stresses that very idea of liberty, that man has been endowed by his creator with certain unalienable human rights, among these being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, It's in our mottos, the land of the free. It's on our coins, that language of liberty. Uh, It's engraved and riddled throughout the architecture of our uh, nation's capital. Uh, Whether it's freedom to be able to assemble together and worship the Lord, the freedom of speech, uh, freedom to be able to pursue an education, these kinds of liberties many, many people value. Liberty in its various forms is a tremendous blessing. But liberty seems to have its limitations. It has a limited influence. One may have much freedom in their lives and yet become very complacent as a person or even lazy or even morally uh, corrupt and wicked. The Apostle Peter knew this full well when he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. By itself, liberty will not protect a person from making a terrible mess of their lives or a mess of other people's lives. Something more is needed to form godliness and to preserve godliness. And one of those things we know is truth. Truth. Truth about who God is. Truth about this world, who I am. Truth about what godliness uh, looks like. And through the book of Proverbs, which we have been considering, that's what this wise father and wise sage is communicating to his son, Words of understanding, words of insight, wisdom about what a godly life looks like. And here we're in chapter 6 of Proverbs. And the wise father teaches his son about godliness by telling him what it is not. What godliness does not look like. None of us want to be used as a negative example, but that is what the wise father does here. He gives examples, negative examples, Uh, here regarding godliness. So it's Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 19. Listen now to God's word. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, or humble yourself, and plead Urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard, 
consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. He winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This particular passage, as well as several places in the preceding chapters of Proverbs, is, I think, reminiscent of John Bunyan's allegory, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, where the main character, Christian, and his long and challenging faith journey to the celestial city meets various kinds of characters. And some of those characters he meets are good and godly characters, uh, those named faithful and hopeful and evangelist. But then there's others who are named, for example, foolish or sloth or presumption that Christian has to look out for uh, in associating with and becoming like. Well, through Proverbs, we've already been introduced to characters from the, the father to the son about uh, people he needs to look out for. In chapter 1, verse 11, he, he warned about those sinners who will entice you, who will say, come, come, join our group, join our party, our faction here, and uh, we will lie in wait for blood, greedy for unjust gain, those bent on selfish pursuits that cause suffering and pain to others. He's also been warned about, and we have been warned about, the forbidden uh, woman who appears outwardly uh, sweet, but whose feet go down to death. Well, here in chapter 6, we're introduced to three more characters. Three characters. People, the father does not want his son uh, to become like. One is the ensnared. I'm going to call him the ensnared in verses 1 through 5. Two is the sluggard, verses 6 through 11. And then three is the troublemaker in 12 through 15. And as we consider these three negative examples, I think there's at least two threads that we want to weave and consider through these uh, verses. The first is that avoiding these characteristic, characteristics is more than mere outward behaviorism. A person can be wise and good with their finances. They can be a hardworking per person. They can be honest, a person of outward integrity, but be far from the Lord in a godly life. This is not mere behavior modification. That's not what the Christian faith is. This is about the redeemed life, the, the person who has been delivered from something, an old self, an old life, and redeemed for something, a new life, a new self. 
That's what the father is desiring for his son, a a godly character that's being worked in him. Uh, We're told in verse 16 what the Lord hates. This is about uh, the Lord and what is pleasing to him and what is displeasing to him. So it's not mere outward behavior. Second, the way this father speaks to his son, I think, reveals to us something very important about what God is after in the lives of his people. Notice he does not come to his son with a statement of theology and simply say, just, son, go study this and you're set. That's not how he is going to shape his son. He comes with a description of characters, a description of people. Now, full disclosure, I love theology. I will say, I love it. In fact, of of, of reading church history or uh, books about pastoral ministry, dipping into philosophy, I would say of those disciplines outside of Scripture, systematic theology I'm drawn to the most. So this is not a mark against theology. But the Father knows something here very important to all of us. And that is your life, your biography, who you are, how you act, what you think, flows from your theology, what you truly believe. A person can have a great grasp on the doctrine of election, but be a very ungrateful person, which doesn't seem possible, but it is. One can quote the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, even referencing where it comes from, maybe breaking down the Hebrew syntax. But that same person can have a life full of idols, false gods in their lives. How is that? The father wants for his son not only a mind that understands, but a character, a character of godliness that reflects the Lord himself. And so he's giving these examples of characters of which he does not want him to become. The first character is the ensnared. This is in the first verses of the chapter. My son, if you've put up security for your neighbor, if you've given your pledge for a stranger. Well, this putting up security or giving your pledge is essentially co-signing a loan. It's putting yourself up as collateral. It's taking upon yourself the risk of someone else's debt. It's surety. And while the scriptures call the people of God to be generous in giving to others, helping others, it warns about being foolish in gambling. Yes, be generous. Uh, In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, the Lord says if One becomes poor among you, lend to him and open your hand sufficient for his need. Into the New Testament, when Paul sends Onesimus, a former slave, back to Philemon, Paul says to him, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul covered, he was willing to cover Onesimus' past debts. But what Paul did not say is to promise to cover all of his future ones. That's part of the warning here. This person is ensnared, how? With his words. Verse 2, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, 
if you're caught in the words of your mouth. This is a person who has made a commitment they cannot fulfill. So the ensnared are not simply those willing to put up security or to co-sign. The scripture is not forbidding that under any and all circumstances. It's rather those willing to risk or gamble their own future for someone the banks already think are a bad risk. Bruce Waltke called this self-inflicted economic impoverishment. It's fallen into a trap. And that's why we have the language there in 4 or 5. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. The father is teaching the son the wisdom of responsibility. Why would a person do this? I was thinking perhaps to be nice, to be kind. They've put themselves into an unfortunate circumstance. Maybe they want to be able to kind of be the hero for someone else. Perhaps we are ensnared or caught by self-inflicted economic impoverishment. We've given our pledge or gambled something unwise and risky. Or through overindulgence, we've been sunk by the debt we've incurred through unwise credit arrangement. School loans have added up, auto loans, credit card debt. It's added up. One is no longer free. They're, they're bound by these things, feeling chained. And in those hard circumstances, we need to know there is hope. There is good news for every one of us. We hear it from the suffering Saint Job in Job 17:3, where the Lord, where Job says to the Lord, "Be my surety, for who else will pledge himself for me? O Lord, would you do for me what I would not do for someone like me?" And at the cross of Christ, our Lord Jesus essentially wrote, "Paid in full, paid in full." Our life has been redeemed. You've been cleared with God. And with that work, God has opened the door to a new life, opportunity to be shaped as a new person. That's where the father goes with his son next, the opportunity to make something of your life, the redeemed life in the Lord. So he paints this second negative example the sluggard, in 6 through 11. He says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the, the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. What is a sluggard? You know when you have honey or cold syrup and you're trying to pour it out and it's oozing out really slowly. Almost every morning I have toast with peanut butter and honey. And inevitably when the honey gets low in the bottle, it happened this morning. Turn it over and you wait. And you wait. And you wait. That's the picture of a sluggard. They're slow. They're hesitant when they ought to be active and decisive. The sluggard's sort of life motto is, don't rush me. I'm going to go at my pace. And it's going to be a slow one. 
It's really laziness and the inclination to make the soft choice. Always the soft choice. And you know, if we're honest, deep down inside every one of us is a sluggard. The sluggard reappears through the book of Proverbs. We see him in chapter 26, verse 15, where it says, The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Which means the sluggard might start something, but they never finish it. We see the sluggard in chapter 22, verse 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside, exclamation point. I shall be killed in the streets. Really? A lion? Downtown? On Main Street? Not only does the sluggard come up with any excuse they can to get out of work, but they don't see the world in reality. What should the slugger do? He needs to take a look at nature. He says, go to the ant. Let's, let's examine the ant. Look at the natural world. Go to the ant, O oh sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. I remember as a child during my elementary school days, walking down to the end of the uh, driveway to... Uh, where the bus stop was, and uh, up on a hill while waiting for the bus was a large ant pile. I don't know if we have these ant piles here in Connecticut, but we have very large ant piles in Washington, and, uh, and it just looked like this mound vibrating of movement and activity, right? And, and if we were to uh, observe a little bit closer those ants, we would learn a few things, which the Father tells us here. One, they have an inner motivation, he says, without having any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread. Right? There's no chief ant standing over the others with a whip. And I have never seen, maybe you have, an ant that is dragging its feet. Just haven't seen it. Maybe if it was injured by one of us. Right? They all have the motivation that they need to make something of the life that the God has given to them. Secondly, they have this ethic of hard work. She prepares her bread in summer. Apparently, there's over 100 species of ants. Likely, the one being referred to here is the harvester ant, which is all throughout Palestine. Even in the summer heat, they're hard at work. I don't know if ants sweat, but if they do, they don't care. They just work. They don't complain. Now, this is not a busy body. But it is one who is busy doing the work of the Lord. I think every family should be kind of like an anthill. Every church should be kind of like an anthill. People working, active in the, in, in the work of the Lord. Third, they prepare for the future. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So the ant is working today for tomorrow. She is not banking on life going her way. She prepares her bread. That's essentially stockpiling. And the reason that matters is because 
A storm is coming. Difficulty is coming. We don't know when. We don't know how. Could be an ailment in my own personal life. It could be a family situation. Could be within our society. Are we stockpiling God's word and a life of devotion in Jesus Christ that we may be able to stand as the storms come? Ray Ortland writes this, Your danger in mind is not that we become criminals, but rather that we become respectable, decent, commonplace, mediocre Christians. The 20th century temptations that really sap our spiritual power are the television, banana cream pie, the easy chair, and the credit card. The Christian wins or loses in those seemingly innocent little moments of decision. Lord, would you make my life a miracle? And so he says, uh, go, go to the ant. There's an emphasis in the language there. Go to the ant. Wake up, O sluggard. It's similar to what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5.14. Awake, O sleeper, he says. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. We might love to study deep and profound things, but do not forget to study the ant. Don't forget to study the ant. Then you have finally the troublemaker. Verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks, his, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, continually sowing discord. Uh, those words winking and signaling and pointing, it's revealing a heart and a life that is deceptive in its motivations. Seeking to sow discord. And that can come not only from without, but from within the church of Jesus Christ. It can come in little ways, but it can come in with tremendous impact. It can come in the form of, of gossip about other people or slander, kind of undermining someone else's reputation or name or work. It can come through party spirit. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. We learn through this whole passage what it is that our Lord despises, what he hates, strong language. And it's really at heart, discord, that's what he's driving at. The, the father uses a, a literary device, a numeric literary device in verses 16 to 19 to communicate at heart what the Lord really does despise. He says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination. He then lists those six things. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and so forth. And then it's the seventh, the one that might be overlooked more easily, that he's really wanting to draw attention to. The final one, the seventh, the one who sows discord. All the others create uh, division and faction and discord. And that really is the problem with the ensnared and the sluggard and the troublemaker. It's the discord, the division, and the suffering that they cause, either in their own lives or in the lives of others. The Lord despises this. But in knowing what the Lord hates, we know then what the Lord loves, what he cherishes, which is unity, oneness, oneness together, oneness in him. 
Uh, Psalm 133, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That's where Christ dwells. Christ, our Lord, dwells in the midst of unity. That's what he prayed for in John 17, the high priestly prayer. May they be one, Father, as we are one. And not only is Christ present in our unity, but our unity is his cross becoming real in our hearts and in our lives. As we demote ourselves, as we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ more and more. And our unity is not only a good thing, it's very much a prophetic thing. As we dwell as the people of God in unity in Christ, we are saying something to the world. It is prophetic in that way. We're saying to the world, we're saying to those idols in the world, Jesus is Lord, you are not. Jesus is the one who gives us life. You do not. Jesus is the one who forms us as one. You do not. You don't claim me. Christ claims my life. Christ claims us as his people. So if you feel ensnared or even sluggish, know again who it is who has you, who has set claim upon your life. Who it is that continues to speak that fatherly word of wisdom and godliness to us as he's continuing to shape us uh, as a people made in the image, his image and after the likeness of Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, even in these negative examples, we give thanks that you instruct us and teach us. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and spirit that is at work within us, uh, not only uh, preserving us and sustaining us, uniting us in your Son, but continuing to form us and shape us that we might be reflecting your character. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to sanctify us and uh, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, that it would be for your glory and for our joy as your people. And for this we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for our hymn of response, uh, Be Thou My Vision, 642, as we prepare for uh, the Lord's Supper.